The same day that Martin Luther King delivered his speech, I Have a Dream, that same day the amusement park discontinued segregation. And so at the same, I don't know if it's minute to minute, but on the same day that King delivered his speech, it was the first day that an African-American child and two white children rode on the carousel together. That's Joanne Hill, a traveler, foodie, and longtime resident of Washington, D.C. She's written a new book entitled Secret Washington, D.C., A Guide to the Weird, Wonderful, and Obscure. From spirit circles, civil war, a mushroom house, and assassinations, to desegregation and quirky memorials, Joanne unlocks some interesting and unusual history that's been hiding in plain sight. Welcome, I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick, and this is World Footprints. How is it that relics from two bygone Baltimore-area amusement parks become part of the focus of a new guidebook about the quirky side of our nation's capital? Washington, D.C. is the seat of government power in the United States. Around the world, D.C. is known for the majestic monuments and world-class museums that dot its landscape. But the fabric of the city is much more than its tourism offerings, political bickering, and social circles. Washington's rich and complex history reflects America's history, and much of this country's story is revealed through mysterious relics, underground societies, forgotten and abandoned buildings, and controversial scandals. Assassinations of Presidents Abraham Lincoln and James Garfield, Crimes of Passion at the U.S. Capitol, Explorations into the Occult. Those are some of the secret Washington, D.C.'s dark and untold truths of how our nation emerged. But there are other stories in the book that author Joanne Hill shines a bright light on. The creativity and innovation that has emerged in the nation's capital city. From quirky art installations to architectural oddities like the Mushroom House. So how did this guidebook of D.C.'s weird, wonderful, and obscure come about? Would you believe? A chance encounter with a couple in Texas during a trip to Egypt. Now that's a weird and wonderful story, but we'll save that for another time. As Joanne tells it, I love to write and I love to write about D.C. And this was a fun way to kind of explore the city that I've lived in for 19 years, but in a whole different way, right? So... As a former teacher, I, of course, would go on countless field trips to museums, the National Mall, and visit memorials and so forth. And a lot of those places are still in my book. But I also started to explore the kind of off-the-beaten-path locations and like learn about the hidden histories that were sometimes you know, scandalous and controversial that as a third-grade teacher, I definitely wasn't teaching to my kids. So this really, and I met with some historians. I, I called some friends who I knew that, that are, who are tour guides and historians. I talked with docents and park rangers. And so, so many people were helpful in this project that kind of led me to, you know, oh, you should look into this story. And then when you look, look into one story, that leads to another story. And, you know, it's all kind of connected, which was really fun. So yeah. that's like the evolution of this book. When people come to D.C., they know about the museums, they know about, you know, the things on the mall, the memorials, etc. They don't know about these kind of weird and obscure things that you've been able to uncover. You're absolutely right. I think, and that's, we're all kind of, I don't want to say guilty is not the right word, but all whether you've been living here forever, right, if you're born and raised here, or you're a tourist, 
you know, it's natural to think of DC as a city of government and monuments, museums, and because that is a big part of our city, right? And that's a wonderful part of the city. And that's what attracts so many people to the city. But yeah, I mean, to dive a little deeper and to go to the more obscure places and uh, to learn some maybe more off the, you know, off the cusp uh, stories about these places that we know, that's kind of, I think, the fun part of the city and knowing that, yeah, the city's about monuments, memorials and governments, but there's so much more, right? It's such, it's so much richer than just the big, you know, National Mall. Joanne's right. Washington has a pedestrian image. It's not as openly quirky as a New Orleans, Austin or Baltimore. So we were curious how Joanne's exploration of the quirky side of D.C. changed her impressions about her longtime home. I pride myself in, I, I go, I'm out and about all the time. And so I am someone who goes to museums and explores. And as, like I said, as a teacher, I, so I felt like I, I was really knowledgeable. You know, I think I had an inflated sense of just how much I knew about the city. So I learned a lot, but you're right. I mean, you do think about the quirkiness or, you know, the jazz or the music parts and so forth of different cities. I think what is interesting about D.C., I mean, among so many other places, and you think about other cities like Philadelphia, a lot of America's history takes place in D.C., right? And so the stories that I uncovered that are, quote unquote, D.C. history stories are really stories about, you know, our nation and how our nation has emerged. And I found myself getting really interested and enthralled in the civil right in the Civil War era, which full transparency before this book, I mean, of course, I knew the Civil War era, of course, but I, I wasn't as knowledgeable and I'm certainly not a historian. There are a lot of stories in my book about around the Civil War because it is such a fascinating time. I mean, obviously a devastating time of our country and so forth, but a lot of stories I found were connected and then connected to one another through the Civil War era that I wasn't aware of. As Joanne said, DC's history is America's history. And there is so much of this country's backstory that she has uncovered. Joanne also highlighted some places like Clark Farm and the Enchanted Forest that only people like my husband Ian, who grew up in this area, would know about. With so much content, we asked Joanne how she determined what story she would choose to tell DC's story, especially when the places she included in her book are obscure. There's another entry in my book um, about Foamhenge. I don't know if you're familiar with Foamhenge. It's out in Virginia, and it's now at Cox Farms. And the designer, the artist behind Foamhenge, which is basically a replica of Stonehenge that's located in, in England, his name is Mark Klein. And so I, I knew about Foamhenge, and he and I talked at length. This was during COVID, so we talked on the phone and so forth. And he gave me all of this information. And then after our discussion, he's a really interesting guy. He said, hey, just so you know, I did some other work at a farm in Ellicott City. Do you know Clark's farm? And then he started telling me about that farm. And so he led me to that. And so he actually put me in touch with the owners there and gave me some background. And then, of course, I researched and so forth. And so prior to my book, I wasn't actually familiar with, you know, the park out there and so forth. But I thought it was fascinating, especially because, you know, in its heyday, and like you said, during your childhood, it was it was a big attraction, right? And then, of course, with big time, you know, amusement parks coming in and Six Flags and all those other places kind of coming on the rise, it lost some of its appeal, you know, a lot of as a lot of kind of smaller entities do. And so he was the one who steered me in that direction. And as I read about it, I was like, 
wow, this is amazing. And so that's kind of how that happened. So it is really incredible how some stories led to other stories. In terms of making the cut, that was hard, although a lot of the writing I did was during the pandemic. And so there were places that I wanted to include that I just couldn't get to or that closed down or that I also knew I didn't know when they would reopen. I didn't know if readers could get to them. And so I started looking more into outdoor places that I could get to and that were very easy and accessible because I also knew regardless of how long the pandemic lasted, people could get to most of these places because they're outside and they're distance friendly. And then of course, some then a lot of them were also free. And so that also helped kind of let me narrow down. But yeah, it was hard. There were some some places that I, I initially wrote 90 entries and I had to shave it down to 84. And honestly, choosing those six, I actually reached out to a number of friends and I said, okay, I want you to look at these 10 places and I want you to tell me which of these six are the most exciting for you or, you know, give me your top five. And they were really good. I I chose different friends who knew the city, who didn't know the city, and they kind of helped me narrow it down too, because they were kind of the average reader who I thought would would be a good indication of which ones would, would last and so forth. Joanne mentioned that she was particularly interested in the Civil War, so we had her share some of her favorite Civil War stories that she uncovered during her research for Secret Washington, D.C. One such story involved spirit circles and Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, so of course, when you talk, when you think about the Civil War, probably, you know, one of the first individuals you think that comes to mind is Abraham Lincoln. There are countless stories and countless, you know, he actually, I, I researched and found that there are more, the only person who has more books written about them is Jesus than, than Lincoln. Lincoln is literally one of the most written about individuals in history. If you go to Chinatown Walk and Roll, you might know the restaurant, right? So I have been there numerous times. It's a pretty popular go-to eatery. That is the present day site of a former boarding house, right? The Surratt boarding house. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's significant about it, that is it was a, it was a meeting place where a lot of um, where cons- um, conspirators met and plotted, including John Wilkes Booth to plot the kidnapping and murder of Abraham Lincoln. So I was familiar with that story. I, I don't think I knew just how involved Mary Surratt, the woman who ran the boarding house was involved in that. So she was very, very pivotal in this, this work. She provided guns, she provided field houses, and she actually was found guilty of her role in this conspiracy. And of course the execution, and she was executed by hanging. And she's actually the first female who was executed this way in us history. So that to me was fascinating. And then as I started to explore more about Lincoln, I learned a lot more about Mary Todd Lincoln and she's a fascinating, fascinating woman. But the biggest thing that I was drawn to that I included in my book was her participation in seances. And so during the Civil War era, a lot of individuals, many women, participated in these spirit circles. And whether you were elite, it really didn't matter your standing. It was mostly because there was so much death and so much sadness that a lot of individuals turned to these seances because they wanted to reconnect with loved ones who had died. So at Lincoln's Cottage, which you know now you can go, it's be- so beautiful in the grounds. And I know I go to the Bluegrass Festival every year there. This is where a lot of these spirit circles would, would happen. And this is where Mary Todd Lincoln would often go. And so she was a firm believer in these spirit circles. And so Abraham Lincoln every now and then would go with her 
not because he was necessarily also a believer, but more so just to kind of check it out to see, you know, really how valid was it and how, how actually, you know, legit was it. And of course he realized he, there was no credibility with it. So he kind of enlisted individuals, a journalist, he enlisted uh, Dr. Joseph Henry, who was the first secretary of the Smithsonian, to kind of do some investigation and found out actually the individual who was running these seances was a fraud. You know, this medium was really not a medium. But of course, that individual, his name is like Lord Colchester, he was mad and he threatened to basically reveal that Mary Todd Lincoln was going to these seances and making such a big deal. And even though there were there were talkings about this and there was a lot of gossip that she was attending, nothing was ever really verified. Even back then there was damage control and they, they were able to kind of control that. So it really didn't go out into the public, but it didn't deter her. She still con- continued to go to seances. Um, it's been said that she also at, uh, attended seances at the White House. Lincoln, there's no, there's no proof that Lincoln, actually Abraham Lincoln joined her at the White House, Mm -hmm. uh, but she was a firm believer in the occult. And I think again, like so many other individuals at at that time, it was more of just like grasping for anything of hopefully reconnecting with loved ones. The place that Joanne was talking about is Lincoln's Cottage, and it's located on Rock Creek Church Road in Northwest DC. Today, the attraction hosts an annual bluegrass festival. Before we moved on from the Civil War, there was one more story that Joanne was eager to share with us, and it has something to do with brothels. We talked a lot about museums being such a draw for locals and visitors. So the American Indian Museum on the Mall, which is one of my favorites, especially architecturally, is just, I think, just stunning. Mm-hmm. Um, what I learned, and I used to go there often, take kids on, kids on field trips there and so forth, The American Indian Museum is actually built on a former brothel. What's interesting about this story is during the Civil War era, D.C. had over 100 brothels. So there was an area between about Capitol Hill and now uh, Federal Triangle where they called Hooker's Division. And brothels became so popular, again, because of the war. A lot of soldiers were coming in, a lot of generals and so forth. So there were a lot of travelers, especially traveling men who came to the city. And with that, brothels became very, very abundant. This particular brothel where the American Indian Museum now stands was owned by a very prosperous brothel owner. And it was a woman. And back then that was very, very rare. Her name was Mary Ann Hall. And she was considered pretty much to be the most successful, not just madam, but brothel owner. But what's even more interesting about is that she was also, though, considered to be a prominent figure in D.C. And so she was a socialite and she was an elite, um, you know, astute businesswoman. Men and women together had a lot of respect for her. Uh, She also was known to treat her her employees really, really well. Uh, She offered health insurance and helped with, you know, um, she actually ended up opening up or renting out some of her, of the space to a medical clinic for women. And so she did a lot for, she took care of her women and she did a lot for them. Um, Especially at that time, I mean, that was how some women had to kind of make ends meet and that's how they worked. And so um, she made sure that not only was she running a successful business, but she also wanted to make sure that they were protected too. Years later, when they were building and excavating the land for the museum, they actually found a lot of artifacts from the former brothel. So they found champagne flutes and champagne bottles, and they found 
really expensive, beautiful China and so forth. So it also kind of shows you that they lived very well. You know, at the time, this wasn't really prevalent. And so the, the artifacts they found were showing that they lived a pretty nice, uh, affluent lifestyle. That was one of my favorite stories I came across. Wow. In terms of the attractions that typically define Washington, such as the monuments, yeah. uh, places like Arlington National Cemetery, your book does an excellent job of uncovering stories and finding these, these hidden gems, even about iconic places. Share some of the things that you learned about some of the iconic places that has changed how you look at them and how a visitor to Washington might have a different perspective on them when they come. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. Um, so the World War II Memorial on the Mall is one of the places featured. And so um, behind the pillar where the Pennsylvania, you know, there's a pillar for each state and territory and so forth. Behind the Pennsylvania pillar, you really have to look for it. There is, um, it's considered graffiti, but it says there's like this little bald headed man um, with this long nose and it says Kilroy was here. And I did not know this story, but what happens is that this piece of graffiti um, was, was there because during World War II, there was this graffiti artist who would basically around the world would leave this symbol. And basically the whole point was to show um, soldiers who were in battle and who were out on the main front lines, like someone else is here, like giving you comfort, like you're not alone. Kilroy was here. And so it became kind of a phenomenon around the, around the world, more or less, of this graffiti that isn't really pretty to look at per se. It's not, you know, it's not intricate or anything like that, but it, it, it was more used for to help soldiers know that they're not alone, that their people are looking out for them. So that was interesting to find, but you have to look for it. You really have to look for it. Another, I think, iconic place right outside of the city is Arlington Cemetery. And so I found some really, there's a lot of great stories about Arlington Cemetery, but one, and it, again, it's connected to the Civil War. Arlington Cemetery, I mean, of course, is huge, but back during in the 1800s, Robert E. Lee, actually his home was in that vicinity. And so before the cemetery became a cemetery, Robert E. Lee's home was once he left to go fight in the Civil War, the government actually purchased his land in 1864. And they want to deter him from coming back, basically, right? It was very, very, very spiteful. And so what a lot of individuals started doing was they started burying casualties around his rose garden to deter him from coming back. Mm. Yeah. So before you know it, there are 26 soldiers who had died in the war were buried around there. And that, of course, again, was deter to deter him from returning to his home. And also because they thought, well, he's not going to dig up these graves. I mean, it's pretty dark and morbid when you think about it. He actually, though, was going to come back, but then eventually just decided like not to. And this was converted into a national cemetery that actually then ended up becoming Arlington Cemetery. I mean, of course, much bigger, but his home was kind of like a centerpiece of what the cemetery is now. That story blew us away, but Joanne shared a theory about the secret society of Illuminati and where it's rumored to be headquartered in the D.C. area. Admittedly, her theory was not that surprising. 
there's a theory, right? And so theories are theories. And of course, they're not proven. And a lot of individuals, you know, it's been a long time theory that the Pentagon is basically served as the headquarters for the Illuminati. And a lot of it with, you know, the size, the Pentagon shape and the five sides and so forth. And so there are conspiracies around it and, so, you know, and stories behind it that it's linked to the Illuminati. Of course, there's been no uh, proof, you know, there are deniers, 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 and and who knows, but it is just an interesting thought that, hmm, is there, you know, is there a connection? Is there some truth to that? The research I found, again, nothing was proven, but I just, I was fascinated that, you know, theories exist sometimes for a reason, so perhaps, you never know, maybe. I'm there's a lot that goes on at the Pentagon that we'll never know about. <laughs> right? And so anything is kind of plausible in the sense that, right, there's a lot of things that we, the general public, just aren't privy to. You're listening to the award-winning World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. World Footprints connects you to the world through powerful storytelling that uncovers the full narrative of our cultural and human experiences. Discover the world through stories at worldfootprints.com and make sure to subscribe to the World Footprints newsletter for compelling and exclusive content. Carol Burnett said, It's almost impossible to be funnier than the people in Washington. Hmm. We'll have to think about the message behind that statement. Here's more of our conversation with Joanne Hill, author of Secret Washington, D.C., a guide to the weird, wonderful, and obscure. Of all the stories that Joanne had uncovered, we wanted to know what story resonated with her the most. The carousel in the National Mall, which of course is an, you know, an iconic attraction for tourists and visitors and so forth. In my research, I found that the carousel in the National Mall actually came from an amusement park outside of Baltimore called Gwyn Oak Amusement Park. Mm-hmm. And during the time, the same day that Martin Luther King delivered his speech, I have a dream, on that same day, the amusement park discontinued segregation. And so at the same, I don't know if it's minute to minute, but on the same day that King delivered his speech, it was the first day that an African-American child and two white children rode on the carousel together. It was just so symbolic that it was just basically exemplified like his message, right? Of, har- of racial harmony and integration and so forth. So the carousel then years later in the, in the 80s was moved to the National Mall and then was eventually purchased by two private citizens. It's not owned by the mall or the Smithsonian. And this, that story wasn't known for a while. It then became known. And now if you go to the carousel, there's actually a really nice plaque that commemorates that amazing moment. But that just... That just gave me chills of like, what an incredible, innocent moment for these children and so meaningful and tied to such a historical moment as well, I thought was just. And of course, now it's, you know, where it is on the National Mall too, not too far from where the speech was delivered. I mean, to me, it's just so incredible just how it all merged and connected. So that resonated with me the most. That's a beautiful story. And we thought we should end there. But We know that Joanne uncovered some odd things that she shares in her book. So, inquiring minds wanted to know. The weirdest. So, um, there is the big chair in Anacostia. 
Do you know that place? Mm-hmm. So it is, it's not too far from the Anacostia Metro and it's a huge wooden chair. And the story behind it basically is years ago, and that's not the original chair, it's a, rep, it's a replica, but years ago there was this furniture store that wanted to get publicity and they wanted to do advertising. And so they decided that they were going to have like this um, glass cube on top of the chair that had, I believe like one opening, there was I think three walls. And they hired this model to live in this chair, in the cube for a publicity stunt. Yep. And this model agreed and lived there for, I think, around 40 days or so. And so, you know, of course, like they would bring her food and so forth. And she eventually, I mean, you, how long can you live in, an, in a glass cube on top of a huge chair? But the story to me was so bizarre that A, that even happened and B, that someone agreed to do that and that that was a marketing which just blew my mind. And so the chair, I mean, people go and they visit the chair and so forth, but the story behind it to me, is just bizarre. Bizarre is the right word, (laughs) the right word to describe it, for sure. We have lived in Washington as long as Joanne has, and she has opened a door to history and various attractions that we didn't know about. But as eclectic as D.C.'s history is, there is something so magical about our home. We all have our favorite place we go to connect with D.C. So we asked Joanne where she goes to experience the essence of our town. Especially in the last year or so, I have tried to be outside, and I think a lot of us have more than ever. And so I have found myself in a lot of parks, more so than usual. And of course, I go to the National Mall, I I bike, I run, I'm very active, and so I am on the mall. But I also have found myself in a number of parks, so like Meridian Park, for example, Rock Creek Park, I've spent a lot of time hiking recently. I've gone to um, Chuck Brown Memorial Park. And you know, and it's not to say that I go to each of these places often per se, but I've been going to parks and gardens, the Arboretum often. I actually live not too far from the Arboretum. Um, and so these have been places that have been for me, you know, kind of havens and these areas of sanctuary that are just outside enjoying the city, but they're also kind of away from the hustle and bustle of, you know, the city and downtown. And they're just green spaces and I can bring my dog. And it's just, to me, that is, those are my favorite places to go in the city. And we're lucky to live in a very green city. There's a lot of great parks and urban parks in the city, whether they're small or they're big. And we're pretty fortunate. Of course, Joanne's love for D.C. runs deep, as it does for us. But we're travel journalists who are used to traveling. So, in anticipation of her next long-haul flight, we asked her if she could choose anyone to sit next to, past or present, who would it be? If it's anyone, I'm going to choose Julia Child. And there's a lot of reasons. One, I'm a travel lover and I'm a food lover. I I am a huge cook. I love trying new recipes. I grew up, my family's Sicilian, so we are, much of my my entire life has revolved around food. My mom was a huge cook. And, and so Julia Child to me was a, a pioneer in the cooking world, but also a pioneer for women, right? And so she brought cooking shows in, you know, the Food Network pretty much kind of exists because of Julia Child and so forth, but also just being a an icon as a female, especially so many years ago, to me, is so inspiring. I mean, she has a fascinating history, right? She was tied to espionage. I think Julia Child also kind of like lived life by her own terms. Like she 
went to France with her husband and wanted to stay in France and and went to French school and wasn't really accepted and, and stuck it out. And she wasn't a trained chef beforehand. And just, I love her passion for food, but I also admire just how she paved the way for so many women. And she lived life the way that Julia Child wanted to live life by her own terms. And so if I could sit on a flight with her, I would ask so many amazing questions and hopefully we would eat lots of really good food and drink lots of delicious wine together. I really loved talking to Joanne. I loved her energy. I loved her enthusiasm about DC. And, you know, there's so much more that we're going to talk to her about. And this is a spoiler alert. She's actually going to come on again. And collectively, we're going to talk about our favorite places in, uh, in our hometown. Who knew that the nation's capital really had this quirky side to it uh but it was outside of the uh (laughs) capitol hill outside of congress yeah who knew yeah who knew uh because washington's a pretty buttoned down town in many respects but it was nice to hear about two of the attractions that made uh the cut clark's ellie oak farm that's home to some of the uh attractions that once stood at enchanted forest in ellicott city a place that i spent a lot of time at as a young kid in the 60s and 70s and uh, have the pictures to prove it and uh, (laughs) (laughs) yeah and the other story that she shared which I did not know about the the story about the carousel that actually came from an amusement park that once stood in Baltimore in the area where I grew up uh, Gwen Oak and it was nice to learn about that and just to realize how so much of that history is now intertwined with some of the places that make Washington so interesting and compelling and, for this and, book. And really, American history. I actually cried when she told that story. It's just such a beautiful story, and, and I'm so glad that that's included. Um, another story that I'm glad she included was the walk and roll, the little plaque that uh, stands beside the walk and roll Chinese restaurant in Gallery Place. And, you know, I have a love-hate relationship with Gallery Place. I, I love the fact that it's gritty. There's always something going on. I hate the fact that particularly as I walk by the walk and roll and the plaque that identifies the boarding house where... Um, uh, John Wilkes Booth was kept uh, prior to the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Um, there's there's usually a, a rat or two uh, around that alley, and I just can't even look look at the sign. I can't even photograph it because you know how I feel about rodents, mm-hmm. so <laughs> I kind of turn a blind eye. Um, but I love that 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 she included uh, that history, and there's just so much more, dear, that we didn't un- uncover. Um, that you know people will enjoy in in the book and and there's a few places that she actually gave us a private glimpse into that um, places like the house with the ten thousand penny uh, mosaic of DC in uh, that this couple created in their bathroom that's not open to the public it's a private home mm. um, but I, I found it kind of cool that she included that well we'll have to get out and see some of these places. Uh. Yeah, I think they sh- maybe she should uh, create a, a scavenger hunt or something, you know. I think she could go a lot of places with all of the places that she uncovered. And as she mentioned, and this is another spoiler alert, uh, I'm anticipating the second edition of uh, Secret Washington, D.C. because 
she left a lot out. There were stories she didn't include because of uh, limitations, you know, and page limitations. So I look forward to the second book. In closing, we'd like to leave you with a word from Julia Child. Remember, no one's more important than people. In other words, friendship is the most important thing, not career or housework or one's fatigue. And it needs to be tended and nurtured. Bon appetit, Julia Childs. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we thank you for your friendship. We're honored that you chose to spend this time with us. Thank you for giving us the space to help you discover the world through the stories we share on World Footprints. This World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tonya Fitzpatrick is a production of World Footprints, LLC, Silver Spring, Maryland. The multi-award winning podcast is available on worldfootprints.com and on audio platforms worldwide, including iHeartRadio, Public Radio Exchange, iTunes and Stitcher. Connect with the world one story at a time with World Footprints. Visit worldfootprints.com to enjoy more podcasts and explore hundreds of articles from international travel writers. And be sure to subscribe to the newsletter. World Footprints is a trademark of World Footprints LLC, which retains all rights to the World Footprints portfolio, including worldfootprints.com and this podcast.